the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the good old Grateful Dead cast. I'm your co-host, Rich Mahan. Thanks for tuning in to this special rebroadcast of the Denmark episode from season five, where we covered the entirety of the Europe 72 tour. And this coming Saturday, November 5th, is the actual 50th anniversary of the release of the beloved Europe 72 album. And it's also the 2022 Grateful Dead Meetup at the Movies. It's taking place at theaters nationwide, featuring the Tivoli Garden Show in Denmark from 41772. So we thought it would be a great time to share this Denmark episode with you again. Hey, visit us at our website, dead.net slash deadcast. You can see not only all of our other episodes there that we've released, but there's transcripts for all of those episodes, and there's a transcript for this Denmark episode that you might want to look through. Make sure to also visit meetupatthemovies.com. You can find a theater near you that is showing this year's Grateful Dead Meetup at the Movies, showing that Tivoli Garden show from the Europe 72 tour, this Saturday, November 5th. That's meetupatthemovies.com. While the dead were on their Europe 72 tour, they were promoting their latest single, One More Saturday Night, which, ironically, was on Bobby Weir's first solo album, Ace. And just announced is the 50th anniversary deluxe edition of Bobby Weir's first solo album, and there's a few configurations you need to know about. For this new collection, Bobby remixed the original album, and he pairs that with a new live version by Bobby Weir and Wolf Brothers, recorded earlier this year at Radio City Music Hall, featuring the Wolf Pack with special guests Tyler Childers and Brittany Spencer. Our own Jesse Jarno even wrote the liner notes. There will be a two-CD version as well as a custom High Roller Pearl white vinyl release available exclusively from Dead.net, both with a release date of January 13th, 2023, and a black vinyl version will follow on February 3rd. You can pre-order any and all of the Ace releases and merch over at dead.net. Well, in this Rewind episode, the Grateful Dead say ta-ta to jolly old England and climb aboard the ferry boat for a trip across the channel to Denmark. We'll be covering three shows this episode, two at the Tivoli Concert Hall on April 14th and 17th, and a show at Aarhus University on April 16th. Time to let Captain Jesse Jarno take the helm. Grateful Dead arrived on the continent on 13 April 1972, making landfall at Esberg, Denmark, after taking an overnight boat across the North Sea from Harwich. Tour manager Sam Cutler. We went famously from England to Denmark with two buses. One was an English bus and one was a Danish bus. 52 people split between these two buses and we arrived at the port off the ferry in Denmark and the Danish police customs or whatever said okay everyone's got to get off the buses so there's now there's a famous picture of it actually of everyone standing 
kind of somewhat forlornly on the dockside whilst they searched the buses. And Sven, our Danish bus driver, very straight, he came over to see me looking very worried. We'd been there for an hour or so and people were getting all fed up and it was cold and all that. And he goes, the customs man said the the bus smells of hashish. So I, of course, went, no, 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 no. Ridiculous. Of course not. How could that possibly be, you know? We used to have this thing that we used in hotels. It was called osium. It was in a little kind of bottle, a spray. You sprayed it, and it was actually designed for people who were uh, being sick, you know, who were vomiting. It was designed to cover the smell of vomit, right? So I had several of these, needless to say. So I told Sven, the bus driver, oh, I'll, I'll go and check, you know, I'll sort this out. So I went on the bus, you know, and there's all the customs guys searching under seats and all that shit, you know. So I walked around going, everything all right? Yeah, Alice, good. Squirt, squirt. Alice, good. Squirt, squirt. Squirting osium as much as I could everywhere. Anyway, that was all good. In the end, we were all let back. You know, they checked all the passports and all that shit, and they let us all back on the buses, and off we went. And I was like, and I wonder where they, where did they put the fucking hash? Where was it hidden? And it was hidden in the curtains. The curtain or the buses all had curtains, right? And so you used to gather the curtains together like that, and then they'd have a strap around them, you know, that kept them together. And that's where everyone put the hash. And the stupid customs guys never found it. So that was one nil, one to the Grateful Dead, zero to uh, Danish customs. There were at least two Americans following the ban on the entirety of the Europe tour. A pair of young filmmakers, John Norris and Sam Field. Later that summer, they would be two of the primary forces behind the dead concert film, Sunshine Daydream. Both are sadly no longer with us, but I interviewed Sam in 2014 for my book, Heads. It was uh, John Morris and I, and it was John who was the uh, instigator of the whole idea to film a concert. And they decided they needed to study the band in action. So they headed off to Europe. They knew we were there, why we were there, and uh, welcomed us. And so there were ferry rides that we all took together from England to Denmark, for example. And um, say sometimes we were on the bus, sometimes we were off the bus. But, there was, but we, didn't stay at the, we didn't stay at the same hotels, I'll put it that way. We hit them all, except there was one show in Bremen, Germany, which I think was at the place called the Beat Club, which was sort of a for television only, and it was done in a studio, and there was no audience, and so we were doing something else that day or felt it was okay to miss that. And even though the Radio Luxembourg one was also done in a studio uh, there was at least a, a few other people there. But no, we, we we hit them all with the intent of doing that and uh, uh, actually did miss one that uh, turned out to be okay. Well, I don't think Europeans were hip to being on a tour, following a tour, and I really don't think there were any other Americans that were really... Uh, doing that either there was nobody that i remember seeing more than once you know or in more than more than in more than one town there were some people who did go two nights in a row you know in in 
Paris or whatever that we that we saw, but uh, not not from town to town that I can recall. If you're an exception to this rule, or even if you just saw one or two shows, get in touch with us at stories.dead.net. We've heard rumors about a pair of German brothers, Hartmut and Volker Koletsko, who did all the shows on the continent and later became friends with Dick Latvala, but we've been unable to find them. Volker, Hartmut, are you out there? I wish I'd asked Sam Field more questions about the Europe shows and many other topics. The band hit the continent in a cloud of expectations, both theirs and the continent's. Giersbert Hankrut was a Dutch photographer with the Amsterdam-based publication Or. He met up with the band in Copenhagen and would photograph them in a most unexpected location. I used to be a freelance photographer working for a bi-weekly newspaper, music newspaper called in Dutch, Musikant Oer, which is here. Uh, I had an assignment for, for doing, I was kind of their first photographer. I did everything what happened, which was a lot. And we were in the beginning, started 50 years ago, 71. And after a couple of months, when uh, American or English groups came to uh, Holland, there were two, the, the main daily newspaper and this year, this or uh, magazine, that were the two uh, interviews. So, and I was happy to be one of the, the two that were able to, to do these uh, interviews and, and shows. We did not uh, cover much of the Dutch groups, like Focus or uh, Golden Earring. That was not, not big enough for us. We, we were concentrated on the English and American groups. They were very well accepted here and very appreciated, yes. We took the train to Copenhagen to cover the show and that is quite often was a couple of weeks before they would play in in, in holland so that they could publish the, the story the, the review and the photos of the show we also did uh, an interview with bob weir actually we i don't think we did an interview with jerry it wasn't the first time he'd met a band at the edge of the north sea Giusbert made beautiful photographs of many of the era's biggest musicians We've posted a link to his website at dead.net slash deadcast. It was important to cover Europe. It happened a lot of with all the American, the birds I was there one year before. They, they did the same. They started in England or they started in the Netherlands and came, they went to England and tried to conquer uh, Europe. And that was uh, also for them very important. That's the reason that I was happy to be a photographer in that period of time. And there were heads in Denmark ready to meet them. In particular, there was one head who was more ready than most. A head who is now a household name in Denmark, for pretty much all the right reasons for once, though virtually unknown to American freakdom. The late Danish writer Dan Turell. Please welcome Danish historian and Dan Turell biographer Lars Moven. Dan Turell was a very special character in uh, in a Danish context. I mean, he was, a, he was very, very well known in Denmark for a number of years, especially in the 70s and the 80s. I was born in 59, uh, and he was born in 46. So he was sort of a generation older than me. And for my generation, he was, he was sort of the guy that introduced my generation to a lot of cool stuff like the Beat Riders and Jack Kerouac and William Burroughs and a lot of music, jazz music, free jazz, and also beat music, rock music, like the Grateful Dead or Velvet Underground and all that stuff. I mean, so so for a long period, especially in the 70s, where information was not as 
easily available as it is today with the internet and all that, to get to know something about American underground culture in Denmark, you had to go to guys like Dan Terrell, who sort of was finding all this information and writing about it and challenging it into writing and into radio, into television. He was all over the place. And he was a very prolific guy. He was, I mean, he lived only to be 47, like Jack Kerouac, but he published almost 100 books in his lifetime. And at the same time, he was sort of traveling around in Denmark and doing, doing stand-up poetry and lectures and talks. And he was on radio. He was on television. He was in every cool magazine. He was in the newspapers. He was writing poetry. He was performing with poetry and music. He was writing prose and essays and articles and even crime novels. I mean, to understand that, that he was sort of all over the place in a very special way. And his, I mean, I can't think of any other avant-garde poets that are sort of known by everybody in Denmark. Everybody knew what he looked like. He had sort of with, he had a very, he was the only poet also with the real image, like he had a shaved head and painted his fingernails dark or, or black uh, and looked in a very special way, he was sort of iconic. So he, he was basically just very well known. Remember how I said he was ahead? It was clear that he had two sort of heroes or two acts that he followed, especially. One was Velvet Underground from the East Coast. The other was The Grateful Dead on the West Coast. So these two were sort of his his big thing. In various writings, he has talked about how The Grateful Dead was sort of the soundtrack to his life. He was in the late 60s. He moved into a, a, a commune here in Copenhagen. And he one place he states that Dark Star, the long track from Grateful Dead, uh, uh, the Live Dead album, was sort of their favorite tune. And they were constantly listening to Dark Star and taking acid in this commune where he lived around 1970. He went from being a jazz writer to a, a rock reviewer or writer. He started following the Grateful Dead and writing about every new album that came out from about 70 and on. I think his first really favorite was Working Man's Death. And he tells a funny story one place about how when it came out, he was totally blown away by this album. So he he made a, a cassette tape of the album. And when he was traveling around in Denmark, he carried it, it everywhere and played it for everyone who wanted to listen and sort of was pushing that album. And he even carried it on a trip down to Northern Africa, where he was hitchhiking in the desert in, in Northern Africa. And he uh, lost the tape there and the tape recorder. And he writes about how he imagines that some Arab guy found this tape and tape recorder and was now sitting somewhere in the desert listening to Working Man's Dead. So when the dead came to Denmark in 1972, Dan Terrell scored an assignment to interview Jerry Garcia. It's for a music magazine, a Danish music magazine called MM, just the letter M twice, MM. They were staying in Nyhavn, a place close to the harbor front in Denmark, in Copenhagen. Nyhavn basically means New Harbor. Today, it's a very touristy place. Back then, it was a little more rough, you could say, a place with uh, sort of seedy bars and sailors and uh, not a, a too safe environment. But uh, 
but a very, you could say a very colorful environment. It's, it's not very big. It's like one block on St. Mark Street in New York or something like that. Uh, quite a small area in one piece of more autobiographical writing where he tells a little anecdote about, uh, about the meeting. He's talking about, I, I, I mentioned before how this place, Nuhaun, where the interview took place is not very big. And, and one place he writes about, uh, how amazing it was when the Grateful Dead arrived with their entourage of, I think, 40 or 50 people that were traveling with the dead at that time. And they sort of arrived to this place, Nuhaun, and they were all over the place and they completely changed this little part of Copenhagen into a small Haight-Asbury type place. It was a big deal for Dan Terrell to, to meet Jerry Garcia. I think it was one of the first sort of, of his big American heroes that he met in, in real life. I have a feeling that they hit it off quite well, which was not actually the case in all the meetings he had with American uh, musicians or writers. But with Jerry, I think it went quite good. And maybe because Jerry was, as I can read from the things he, he wrote about it, because Jerry Garcia was such a, a relaxed guy and they could smoke some joints together and just hang out. And and it all seemed to happen in a, in a more relaxed atmosphere, uh, which suited Dan Terrell well. So I think that also reflects on, on the content of the interview, that they actually were, hit sort of the same wavelength there. It's a fascinating conversation. And with Lars's help, we've posted a retranslation back into English at dead.net slash deadcast. The original tape seems to be long since gone, so the conversation went from English to Danish and back to English. They speak about the power of music as a form of communication all on its own. The language is getting so weird, Garcia observed. English is being wiped out by television politicians. All these words and statements, generation gap and alternative culture, media expressions and all that shit. The language finally becomes meaningless. It was published very soon after, uh, the, uh, a couple of weeks after or something like that, in a quite nice layout uh, in the magazine. Also, the cover of the magazine was also uh, referring to that interview. So, so Grateful Dead sort of had the full cover, the front and the back cover of the magazine. It was definitely something that meant a lot to him because he mentions it in, in later articles also when he writes about the Grateful Dead or, or Robert Hunter or, or whatever he writes about. Uh, then he goes back to that meeting in 72. After the interview, they went over to Tivoli with Jerry Garcia and Phil Lesh, the bass player, and, and were hanging out there while they were doing sound checks and um, setting up the equipment and so on. And uh, at that point, they were still smoking joints uh, together. He tells about how at some point at Tivoli, while they were waiting for for, uh, for the day to pass so it could be evening and the concert could begin, they were smoking a joint with Phil Lesh. And uh, Dan Terrell was uh, sort of just throwing, uh, when it was half smoked, he was throwing it on the ground uh, very casually. And Phil Lesh got completely paranoid and uh, sort of went down on, on, all f- on, on, <laughs> on the floor and looked for it and picked it up and destroyed it and, and put it in, his, in a small uh, matchbox that he had in his pocket and, and said, oh, you can't do that. You would give We will all have to go to jail and it's very dangerous and people will find out. And, and Dan Terrell and his friend, Peter Bungard, uh, he, he, he was doing the interview together with, they were just laughing and saying, oh, come on, this is Denmark. I mean, 
nothing will happen. Just relax and and uh, feel less that paranoia strikes deep. And then he left with a joint to sort of put it away somewhere. Bjorn Lindstrom saw the dead for the first time on the 1972 tour. I lived north of Copenhagen in a, a small town. We went to Copenhagen and uh, bought American comic books, <laughs> Zap comics, and uh, BC and The Wizard of It. <laughs> we studied that closely, so <laughs> we uh, were sort of into the, the, that culture. We were reading them in English, so that's a great education, really. Learned all the dirty words from the underground comics, that's for sure. <laughs> Bjorn's friend, Han Frank, was another burgeoning music head who saw the band at Tivoli. There were Danish bands. You know. We had Burning Red Ivanhoe and we had Cold Pepper's Orchard and stuff like that. Young Flowers, playing uh, cream-like music, you know, blues, hippie music. The band that I was most into at the time in Denmark was called Savage Rose. Dear Mr. the Savage Rose with Dear Little Mother from their 1971 album of the same name, a big hit in Denmark. You would sit on the floor with your legs folded and the hash clouds would be overhead. And it was amazing. And we had Icelandic sweaters and smoke pipes and, yeah, very intellectual, lots of hair. We were also very much into British music because they were more frequent visitors to Denmark being so close. The dead were following a new trail through Europe, which we talked about in the first episode of this season. A few other acts were ping-ponging through the same venues as the dead that spring. Leonard Cohen, about a month earlier, and Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band, often within Days of the Dead, as well as Uriah Heep and the post-Jim Morrison Doors. Across the street from the Copenhagen Central Station was Tivoli Gardens, an amusement park built in 1843. And in the middle of Tivoli Gardens, Tivoli Concert Hall. So it uh, was a regular destination when we were kids with the grandparents and, and so on, the amusement park. And uh, the concert hall is uh, in the middle of the amusement park, built for classical concerts originally. Bjorn was ready for the show. I, I copied uh, the, the Skull and Roses logo onto uh, took a piece of cardboard cut up in, as a circle and uh, stapled it on the back of an old military jacket. And that's what I was wearing. And Hans was definitely ready. I was celebrating spring and some friends in, in the park and, and had had a few large beers before I came. Suddenly remembered I had to be in Copenhagen at eight. I managed to get there on time. So we met just outside the hall and we strolled in. It's a beautiful hall, actually. Eventually, you know, eventually as... The band came on and burst into to Bertha, and then we were rolling.
just amazing. I'd never heard anything like it. Everybody played an integral part of it. They played off each other. It was uh, so different from any, any other band I'd heard. The band that took the stage on 14 April was a hungry band. What it's really down to is a kind of shared vision thing, you know, that everybody's really on the same page and, and uh, uh, getting high in the same way, which we all did before every gig. The band and crew would get high together, a little microdose, and um, go out there and, uh, and do it. One of Gisbert's great shots of the dead was of just such a moment. The band sitting around in a circle backstage with Sam Cutler, John McIntyre, Steve Parrish, and somewhere hidden from the lens, most likely a joint. We've posted it as part of our daily dose on the dead's social media. Where's the joint? It looks to me like Sam has just passed it to Phil. Sam's coughing. Phil is smiling, perhaps a little guiltily. They wanted to do a good show, and as you know, also a year they played four hours, which is extraordinary and, and that was hard also for them hard working and try to do as best as they could and they did grateful at archivist and legacy manager david lemieux the copenhagen show it's to me one of the brightest shows on the tour sometimes i see concerts dead shows in colors um and i think well that like newcastle i think of a crimson, dark, you know, red. Whereas I look at the Tivoli, the 414 show in particular, as a rainbow. It's it's such a beautiful show start to finish. I think the brightest, I, again, I use the word bright. I feel like it's the brightest show on the tour where from that opener, it's just, it's so pleasing and uplifting and positive. In 2011, to celebrate the impending 40th anniversary of the tour, David assembled Europe 72 Part 2, which includes a quartet of songs from this show. Europe 72 Volume 2, for instance, opens with a terrific version of Bertha. Really wonderful Bertha. That had already opened up Skull and Roses. So I don't even think a song like that was given consideration because of that. quite low so if too many people had been dancing uh, they would have obstructed the view from for the rest but in the aisles uh, there may be, may have been people dancing we, we were in seats about one third back from the stage it's quite intimate so it felt really close they weren't going to play in sweden so i believe there was a great deal of swedes great number of swedes there because we have only we didn't have the bridge then, so, so it was just, you know, a 40-minute ferry ride from, from the south of Sweden to Copenhagen. So there, there were quite a lot of Swedes, probably. They usually are. The dead were on new turf, and they had some discoveries to make. This is from Blair Jackson's 2011 interview with Dennis Wiz Leonard, working for Alembic that tour. Copenhagen was very early, you know. That was one of the first mind blowers. everybody openly smoking hash in the venue. Lighting crew member Ben Holler. The other thing you got to get used to at European concerts, there is fire. Oh boy! But what it is is, they don't have a lot of pot, or at least didn't at that point. They have a lot of hashish because it's smaller, easier to take, and so 
you'd be standing there on the lighting thing, and all of a sudden the three-foot-tall thing of flame would come up, your thing that you show off in Europe is your cigarette lighter. And you have this three-foot thing of flame that you then burn some stuff off the hash, and you can scrape the hash into a bowl or into a make it into a, a cigarette. And so there was flames jumping everywhere all the time. It was, it was a little unnerving to begin with, and then I realized what it was. And then it was quite spectacular. I, I'm sure it was great from the stage, because you just whoosh, whoosh, you know, in the audience. It was the Dead's first real show in a non-English-speaking country, besides their spontaneous pool party in France the summer before. And pretty early into the evening, the band reached their first communication barrier. Hans Frank reports. People started clapping after the first numbers. The band interpreted it as a sign of displeasure. See, uh, you know what? We're going to keep on playing. You don't have to clap like that. But you can if you want to. If you want to clap, go ahead. Go ahead, get it on, but we won't do one in that tempo, you know, necessarily. You can if you want to, but you don't have to if you don't want to. You can do whatever you want. Don't get sucked into it now. But Hans says it was a sign of sheer approval and enthusiasm from the Danish crowd. It was uh, spontaneous, sort of. We're going to be part of this. We're part of this music. They're playing the music to us, and we want to give something back to them. It led to the first of the tour's language checks. The front row was completely occupied by American GIs. I don't know if you know this. A large rotating number number has been stationed in Germany since World War II, the end of World War II. And they gave the rest of us a taste of uh, how a typical deadhead audience would react. Whistling and cheering uh, at every opportunity. Someone told me later that they had been unable to get tickets to any of the shows in Germany. So they made the trip uh, probably by train and ferry to Copenhagen. Bob Weir took it to a vote. I want to show a hands on that. How many of you out there can understand what we're saying? Raise your hands. Not very many. But Bjorn thinks the vote wasn't quite reflective of the room. I think it was more, more than a few. I, th- I think uh, uh, it, it was uh, unfair uh, the way he, he concluded. We all uh, have uh, English in uh, grammar school uh, from the age of uh, 11 or 12. We understand uh, English quite well. A little sl- slow on the uptake, and uh, we may have uh, felt a bit uh, intimidated by, by these uh, very loud GIs. And it did lead to a good transition into the next song. You win again. The news is There was no language barrier in enjoying the music. I'm out of an anglophile family, so so we learned it early. Yeah, that, that, that was I, I I was amazed by the lyrics. I was into the band too at the time, which were also just very much their own and, and made songs that was in a style and uh, a style of music that was just so new and just very special. And the dead was something like that, you know, the lyrics. Uh, especially the Hunter lyrics were just amazing. 
And of course, everybody loved Pigpen. And especially Pigpen. It was uh, great uh, having the chance to, to hear Pig, Pigpen live. Uh, many people in the U.S. Uh, never got to that or got, got on the bus too late. But uh, it was a great performance by him. In Europe, though, first sets would often begin by alternating between Garcia, Weir, and Pigpen. Pigpen was an extremely present part of the tour. Europe 72 Part 2 includes perhaps the canonical version of Chinatown Shuffle, an original song by Pig debuted at the end of 1971. Played nearly every night of the tour, Chinatown Shuffle was a fixture of the band's early 1972 set lists and surely would have stayed with the band had Pigpen's health not taken a turn. In some ways, it might qualify as a lost Grateful Dead song, not officially released until the 1999 So Many Roads box set, which used the version from Rotterdam later down the road, though plenty of tapes circulated long before that. Back in ye olden days of the 1990s, this show from Tivoli was one of my very first dead tapes, and where I heard Chinatown shuffle for the first time. Our friend Sully, the keeper of the Pigpen archive, shared an early draft of the song with us. Pigpen originally titled it Shotgun Song, giving it slight overtones of urban self-defense. The Vibe Survives, a subtly honed song perfectly fit for Pigpen's menacing stage persona. He was only getting better. Get it right, do it nice, and if you make a mistake, pay for it twice, and if you need it, you got to have it. I'll get yourself a shotgun and bring it back home. Look up the wall, you know you gotta crawl. Before you start falling, be ready to fall. And if you fall in my direction, don't expect no help at all. Gone. And by the second set, the band was sufficiently warmed up to record a keeper version of another song for Europe 72, LP2, Track 1. In jazz parlance, this is Take 3 of Brown-Eyed Women. Women was the first original song written for Europe 72, not counting previously recorded tunes. It was written in the summer of 1971, just after the band finished mixing Skull and Roses and Jerry Garcia recorded his solo debut, and just after Garcia and Robert Hunter finished two years of cohabitation in Larkspur, along with their respective partners. It was the beginning of another new songwriting era for the two. The band debuted Brown-Eyed Women during their late August 1971 tour, very much a first musical draft, with a straighter rhythm. I'd describe it as country soul. Gone all the days when the arts broke down Take up the yoke and have the fields around Gone all the days when the ladies said Please, Jimmy Jack Jones, won't you come to me? 
dusty, but the liquor was clean. Sound of the thunder when the rain poured down, and it looks like the old man. That was the live debut of Brown Eyed Women, August 24, 1971, at the Auditorium Theater in Chicago. Now Dick's Picks 35, from the so-called Houseboat Tapes, discovered by our friend Brian Godshow. In 2020, a draft of the lyrics turned up in the collection of the late Dick Latvala, which are fascinating to see in Hunter's handwriting, but appear to be a slightly later version, perhaps rewritten for clarity. We've posted a link to a relic story about it at dead.net slash deadcast. And of course you can, and should, consult Alex Allen's site, whitegum.com, for close examinations of lyric histories, including brown-eyed women. In 1977, David Gans interviewed Robert Hunter, included in his book, Conversations with the Dead, which we've linked to at dead.net slash deadcast. David brought up a previous interview Hunter had done, in which Hunter spoke about certain songs that contained a character that represented the band, Bertha, Direwolf, and Cumberland Blues specifically but it was a character he said he'd finished writing about. Hunter told David, That's true. The character was dispensed with nicely in Working Man's Dead. Then he popped up again in Brown-Eyed Women. It's some composite relative of mine, part of my gestalt baggage. These things have as many layers of potential meaning to me when I've created them as they do to the listener, and I look for that. His Golden Messenger performed the song on the 2016 tribute album Day of the Dead. Oh, Daddy made a whiskey and he made it quick. It cost two dollars and burn like a hill. Oh, I cut the egg with just a fight stick. Drink in a bottle and you're ready to kill. Welcome to the Deadcast, MC Taylor of His Golden Messenger. But I think that was the first time that I actually sat down and, and learned the song uh, in such a way that I could I could play it, you know, play it in public. Learning that song confirmed that they they were really good as as narrative songwriters when they wanted to be because there's a there's a real there's a real story in in that song and. Um, just seeing how it's laid out and how Hunter moves the character through the song is really is really cool. I think of the narrator of this song as someone maybe in their in their twenties, sort of out in the world and kind of kind of footloose and reminiscing back. There's a lot about family in there. The narrator has um, multiple siblings, and the father appears kind of his specter appears throughout the whole song. It's kind of an outlaw song, but it's even more than that. The songwriting to me feels a little bit looser maybe than the three previous records, Working Man's and American Beauty, and I guess the the live record. It feels like an even more holistic version of sort of like the margins, the weirdos of America than the previous record. I think there's some humor to it that still really works for me or just like some, maybe some lightness to it. And it's just like a compendium of vernacular American knowledge in the words. Like I always think of it kind of alongside Harry Smith or like Joseph Mitchell's Up in the Old Hotel, if you know that book. It's like the same sort of same sort of feeling. Once the song was reintroduced into the band's repertoire in later 1971, it stayed there through 1995. 
Though it got slightly scarcer by the late 80s and early 90s, it never disappeared for more than a few months. Like some other dead songs, it's got some unusual songwriting turns. Just like the song's lyrics represent an emotional return to home, so does the chromatic lick that appears throughout the song. Let's go back to the beginning. Welcome back to the Deadcast, musicologist Sean O'Donnell. We're in E, but we're starting away from the tonic chord. It's not where you would necessarily normally start. And then once the riff is there, taking you B, B sharp, C sharp, you're you're right into the harmony and you, you can connect it in a way that is much more clear. Like bouncing a rubber ball, that little chromatic riff gives the song its signature sense of motion. It feels like a normal song and people play it all the time without thinking about this at all, but uh, every, every single section of it has an extra two two beats thrown in. In the chorus, the word getting in the old man's getting on, extended by two extra beats. Sound of the thunder with the rain pouring down, and it looks like So this happens in the verse every time, it happens in the chorus, it happens in the bridge, and even in the little echo at the end, you get this extra two, two beats, totally comfortable and natural feeling, driven by the text. Strange if you stop and think about it or, or like pay attention to it. And while the song didn't have a jam, it did change very gradually. It's really interesting to see a song that you know, is born fully formed, rides the whole career, and doesn't change in any musicological, you know, structural way. So you get to follow the details of nuance in the player's approach. There's no major changes, but you get to hear the changes in gear, the changes in feel, all the variations in tempo and mood. The Brown Eyed Women solo on Europe 72 is pretty simple. The fully formed structure where you're staying very close to the to the vocal line. And so that's where it lives at the very beginning. It's kind of like he has to live with the the conversation for a while, you know, where he, he has an idea and he keeps it close, very much in the line of bluegrass playing or or jazz playing where the head is the head and you stick to it best you can. But as he gets more and more comfortable, he's He's a talker, and that's kind of how I imagine it. Um, and, and he just starts to embellish as it starts to become a more comfortable thing. He literally grows the number of verses he's going to talk. He makes the conversation longer and longer. Uh, so they stick with one verse all the way through the hiatus. But the solos get fancier and fancier across that arc. You know, by 73, they're already decorated, you know, 
in a clearly decorated way, and they're starting to get fairly well embellished by the by the hiatus. Um, and then when they come back, it starts off in a one verse version, but by the time you get to May seventy seven, it's three three verses already, and quite more verbose. from May 25th, 1977 in Richmond, Virginia. Now Dave's Picks 1. The, the melody still remains the anchor. So you could still hear clips of the sort of vocal rhythms in the, in the playing. But what he does is he opens up the range a ton and has an arc to the whole solo. So there's what would be the normal embellished version of the, the earlier periods the first time through. And then in the second time through, uh, he expands the range to bigger and starts to use double stops. So it's more guitaristic. And then the third one is climactic with high bends and a couple of chromatic riffs that then kind of stay in the vocabulary for that song the rest of the way. Like you'll, you'll hear snips of that in, in, in the 80s and in the 90s of the same kind of uh, little chromatic lines. And by 1991, it's even more embellished. a version from June 17, 1991 at Giant Stadium with Bruce Hornsby on piano, now the release Saint of Circumstance. First, Vince Wellmick jumps in. Then, Hornsby enters the chat and turns it into a jam. Before Garcia cedes to the piano player entirely. Brown-eyed women everywhere. One other song event we'll note from the 14 April show, directly following the canonical version of Brown-eyed women. (laughs) 
The Grateful Dead had backed Bob Weir on Looks Like Rain during the Ace Sessions at Wally Hyder's in February with Jerry Garcia on Pedal Steel. And he'd play Pedal Steel on Looks Like Rain during all the earliest versions, starting with the song's debut in March. David Lemieux. They were so on it. On Looks Like Rain, Jerry played pedal steel guitar, and there weren't enough track assignments to give Jerry a lead guitar and a pedal steel. So they, I guess, I think Wiz might have been watching through a a closed circuit camera. I think that was the case in the truck. And so he could unpatch it when he'd see Jerry sit down at the pedal steel for looks like rain and only looks like rain. So they'd have to patch it from that to that because there weren't enough track assignments and they never missed it. But the Copenhagen version is not only the last version of looks like rain with pedal steel, but the last time Garcia played pedal steel on stage with the dead until a Dylan and the dead tour in 1987, ending a period that started almost exactly three years earlier. I'm a big fan of Phil's harmony on these early versions. But I still sing you love songs Written in the letters of your name Brave stand to come For it surely looks like rain And then it was time for the main event. Welcome back, Graham Boone. Jerry building up. A little bit of repetition up to G, and then up to A, that climactic A. A little bit of climax riff there. Bob really affirmative on the progression, coming back down. Here, a little bit of E minor. and back down to the Dark Star progression. But they're still moving, building up again. Beautiful chords from Bob. Jerry up to G and then A, at that climactic A, hitting it, bending into it. One thing I I regret to this day is uh, that I never got to hear Live Dead. So, when they came to the Dark Star, I didn't recognize it. And so I couldn't appreciate how different it was from the Live Dead version. So we get into this interesting spot where things have kind of settled into B minor. Very strange and interesting key. Still hitting these chords. Then Jerry, he plays his Dark Star riff as if he wants to get to the first verse. But the other guys don't want to go there. They stay in B minor, so he lets go of that. And they're working around. There's a little bit of A major. Keith doing some flourishes. And that E minor chord. 
And then Keith gets into these interesting flourishes. Sherry with beautiful violin sound. Going through different harmonies as if inventing a song on the fly. But then it goes into chromatic notes. Everyone's exploring those sharps and flats. Like we could get into space here, but we haven't yet gotten to the first verse yet. And then a beautiful landing on A major. No. Is this going to be don't let your deal go down. Just a little hint, maybe? With that mixture of the A and the E minor together. Beautiful preparation for what? The Dead's disco ball continued to blow minds in Europe. I remember a great dark star. And they had this huge glass ball under the ceiling, you know, slowly rotating and the lights going on. That was amazing. We were taking places. Jen Scovby saw the dead a few days later in Aarhus, but reports this story. At that time, I had the connection to a, a guy in Copenhagen who was, he was selling drums, actually. And he and his friend had been in the Tivoli concert, not at the TV, but, but at, the, at the Tivoli concert. And his friend has got to look at, you know, these disco things were going around under the ceiling and making light all over. So when he has been looking on that for five minutes, he simply had to go out. He, 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 couldn't, he couldn't stand it <laughs> And then Jared gets into this long riff that he repeats many times. Bob backs off a little bit, and then... Listen for Bob. There it is. Mind left body. In the middle of this jam. But Phil doesn't want that. Totally different direction with the feeling groovy. That great feeling groovy lick. And now they're into that great jam. And then every once in a while pausing to just hang out on a D chord and then going back to the jam. Now this reminds me of Dylan's, all I really want to do. I ain't looking to compete with you, beat or cheat or mistreat you. Simplify you, classify you, deny, defy, or crucify you. There we have that pause on D and then back into it. 
super joyous, energetic. That bill, so strong, doing everything there with the drums. And listen to Bob's comping. So much energy from everybody in the group. Now Keith is low in the mix, but he's right in the middle of it. It's like great Phil flying way up in the range, coming back down, all over the bass. And then Bob says no, moves on to a straight A chord. Where are they gonna go? Everybody on A. Super intensity. Something's gotta give. And why not? Back to feeling groovy. Wonderful pause on D. And then the last time through, calming down, lighter, quieter, and then holding out, beautiful suspended A chord. You're again recalling a little bit of that don't let your deal go down. But they don't go into that. That's true. Out of the ending to Sugar Magnolia was perhaps the first serious pig extravaganza of the tour. Well, I was feeling so bad. I have not found the doctor about what I had. Pigman had done tunes on the first three nights of the tour, but wasn't quite at full strength. In Copenhagen, though, he didn't hold back. You know that love drive a man to drink, make a professor forget how to think, do many strange, strange things to your mind. Try to rock a crooked path and you find yourself on the straight line. What's the matter with you? I got you all turned around and messed up over it was a freestyle so inventive that it inspired a full transcription in the first volume of the taping compendium. He was not the uh, uh, big fellow that he was in the early pictures. He was uh, quite little and skinny and uh, just stood there and uh, built out those wraps. 
That was awesome. The jam even shifted into Pig's first original showstopper, Caution, with the band absolutely cooking. Inside caution, a surprise turn. Walk 47 miles of ball wire, got a cobra snake for a necktie. Got a brand new house by the roadside, made out of rattlesnake hide. Brand new chimney set on top, made out of human skull. Axe-sized woman, come on child, tell me who do you love? Uh-huh. Yes, you do. What you told me to do? What you told me to do? Uh-huh. One of only three performances of Who Do You Love, so that's a rarity. Part of the band's repertoire in 1966, when it showed up on a studio demo, Who Do You Love surfaced only on a few scant live tapes. It's hardly a full performance of the song, but gives this sequence an ominous core before bringing it back home. I have my family doctor about what I hear. I say, doctor, doctor, Mr. MD. Doctor, can you tell me what's ailing me? Bjorn didn't have to wait long to hear the show again. Most of it was on the radio a couple of weeks after. They had edited a few songs out, but but most of it was there and in a good, good quality, taped from the radios. My brother taped it for me. Quarter-inch tape, I've heard that many times. The Grateful Dead got along with Copenhagen. Their local promoter was Knud Thorbenson. John Morris recruited him for the Independent Promoters Alliance that helped organize the Dead's tour. He had a partner named Anders Stephenson, who was the quiet one. But Knud was quite a character. He had a couple of restaurants in, in the end. He was involved with ABBA, bringing them into the world. Had a bit of an affair with one of the girls. He was a great character, blonde, tall. He was your ideal Scandinavian good-looking guy. And he once bought a Rolls Royce on which he had to pay 200% tax. And I said, why? He said, because it's a Rolls Royce and I've got the only one in Copenhagen. Another reason the dead may have gotten along with Copenhagen was the hash. Steve Parrish. The Danish people were great, man. Oh boy, we had a lot of fun in Denmark. And it was the first country where they had no law against smoking hash or marijuana. And so we we couldn't believe it. We went into a bar, me and Kreutzmann, and people were smoking, and I kept asking the guy, you sure it's okay? And he was like saying, he said, you Americans, can't you ever realize that it's okay? The previous September, in 1971, a group of heads had begun squatting in abandoned army barracks, establishing the community Christiania with its open-air hash market known as Pusher Street. Hans Frank. It used to be army barracks just outside Copenhagen, and they just actually just broke into it. There was much less control in, in, the, in the early days, so it was just just anarchy. Disputes between groups of settlers, some were into the environment, some were into exotic foods, and some were into politics, and some just wanted to build a house and a, a windmill and stuff like that. In fact, 
One of the founders of Christiania was a former resident of the commune where Dan Terrell dosed and listened to Dark Star. Lars Moven. One of his best friends, a guy named Jacob Ludwigsen, was actually one of the people who founded Christiania. They were living together in that commune I was talking about. So in that sense, he was really close to, to the beginning of, uh, of Christiania. He didn't live there. And, you know, he was a very dedicated pot smoker or hash smoker. So uh, he would probably go there to buy his supplies. Mountain girl. We walked through there and just found it. It wasn't open when we were there. That's all I can say. You know, there was a few bulletin boards up, but it was just everybody was somewhere else. It felt like, you know, it wasn't the weather was not nice or something. And we did we did cruise over there, but we didn't have the right connection to really explore it. And I think there was a time factor there, too. Sam Cutler. The Grateful Dead, of course, you know, have always been pot smokers, man, you know, forever. And the Californians, for fuck's sake, they always had the best pot. Yeah, ever, because, you know, all kinds of fans would come and go, hey, saying, try some of this, man. Oh, wow, shit, yeah. Can we get some more of it? Sure, you know what I mean? So there was always wonderful pot, and everybody loved pot. But in Europe, of course, they discovered hashish, because at that time there wasn't really any pot in Europe. Europe you know, you need California weather and altitude and all that shit to for good pot. So uh, they discovered hashish, much to their delight. They loved it. Denmark's a kick. I recommend Denmark. It's a lovely country. It's it's just everything is so well thought through in Denmark. In other words, it's a country of designers and they're and carpentry and boat makers. Like in Amsterdam, everybody seems to have a boat. Here's Rosie McGee from the audiobook of her excellent memoir, Dancing with the Dead, available from rosiemcgee.com. My roommate in Europe was Sue Swanson, who handled payroll for the band. And while we were in Copenhagen, Denmark, Sue and I went for a long walk from the hotel, ending up lost in the city's famous red light district, where the hookers were on display behind their crib windows. With the help of a friendly local, we were pointed back in the right direction, and on the way back to the hotel, we found a great basement shop selling hand-knitted Scandinavian sweaters in a dazzling array of colors. We got to do a bunch of sightseeing, and everybody bought a sweater. We all walked around with our beautiful hand-knit Danish sweaters. That's a lovely place, I have to say. They are, they are, it's smooth, you know. Everything there is nice and smooth and, and laid out for, for easy living. So my hat's off to those guys. Much of the band and family and crew were soon outfitted with the Danish sweaters, which can be seen throughout photos of the tour. Throughout the tour, those who had the means got into some high-end shopping. What was funny was that when one of them came back from a shopping expedition with something particularly nice, then everyone else had to go get the same thing. First, it was Dunhill lighters, then Mont Blanc pens, then Swiss cutlery, and so on. This behavior was a continuation of the group mind already in place at home with Pendleton blankets, Courtney tie-dyed mandalas, Navajo silver and turquoise jewelry, Ukrainian flower shawls, even extending to one group of people all driving Citroens. The result was that you could go to any one of a dozen homes in Marin or Sonoma and the decor and accoutrements would be nearly identical. 
Thanks to our friend Sully, we have access to a clutch of letters Pigpen wrote to his parents over the course of the tour. His longtime girlfriend, Veronica, known as V, couldn't make the trip. She was tight with his parents, too, and Pig noted in one letter, Don't let her get down about school and keep her nose in them books. But, Pig noted in a letter home, she should be expecting some mail. I bought V a hand-knitted sweater in Copenhagen and hope it fits. I got her one about my size, it's 100% wool. Mine has no seams done on circular needles and took the woman who made it somewhere around 75, 80 hours to make. If it don't fit, I can send it back and change sizes, colors, or styles. One place the sweaters can be seen is photos of an excursion that Giersbert Hanekrut documented the day after the first Tivoli Concert Hall show. That was a funny thing. They had one day off. I think they did two shows in Copenhagen. I, I covered one. And the next day, they have a kind of day off. And they asked uh, Jerry to join us and we have a tour in, in, with this bus. And, and <laughs> I remember him saying, I'm a musician. I'm not a fucking tourist. I'm not joining you. <laughs> but eventually he did. Alan Trist. There were visits to the island in Denmark where Hamlet occurred. I do remember that, the, the castle. That was pretty exciting, you know, historically. Kronborg Castle overlooks the Sund, a body of water at the exact border of Norway and Sweden, and became Elsinore in William Shakespeare's Hamlet. Hamlet's castle by Denmark and Sweden, right on the border up there. You know, everybody was there, but they were suffering the slings of arrows of outrageous fortune, man. And everybody was getting all gloomy and down and moopy and mopey. And all of a sudden, everybody was Hamlet. Alas, poor Yurik. I knew him, Horatio. He, he was a motherfucker worse than you, man. And everybody was like that. You know, and it was getting kind of depressive. And so. It's also the site of a beautiful and appropriately gloomy portrait of Jerry Garcia, taken by Giesbert Hanekrut for the cover of the Dutch underground paper Or. Kronberg Castle in Helsingor, that's, I think that's Sweden. And that is uh, at the seaside. I walked with him to the area, the, the location with, with the sea, and, and, and the, about the photo, I, you call that pushed, I pushed the, the sky, the dark room, it's just, of course, analog, and I... I had to, uh, I used to work for before I was uh, freelance. Uh, I worked for a well-known photographer, and he learned me how to print photos, and just with your hands pushing, and, and, and which is an important technique. And it's also the type of other well-known Dutch photographers use that technique as well, and I learned that from them. There are a lot of photos of him, but not so many portraits, and I think this is one of the better ones. You can purchase prints from Giesbert's website, and we've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. And then it was deeper into Denmark for the Dead's only university gig of Europe 72, archivist David Lemieux. It is truly a small university, a small college cafeteria in this beautiful wood A-frame building with glass everywhere, the energy I get from that show is very similar to Newcastle, which is a little out of their element, but incredibly cool nonetheless. There's some great stuff in our house. You get the feeling the dead are playing. I think it held 700 people. And this is at a time when the dead could very easily sell out 20,000 seats in the United States. How did the dead end up playing in a university cafeteria in Denmark? The same reason they played most universities back home. There was a budget to bring them. 
But the Stockladen wasn't just any university cafeteria. It was home to Aarhus' Studententer Jazz Organization. Paul Leek attended the Dead's Aarhus show, and starting in the 1980s was the university's official historian, writing the liner notes for this show in the Europe 72 Complete Recordings box set. It was established in 1964. Uh, it was the same year that Stockland was built. This room, uh, which was a university cafeteria during the day and a jazz venue and, uh, or a meeting room uh, in the evening. During the first years, there were Bill Evans, Trio, Dexter Gordon, Dizzy Gillespie, Yusuf Latif, Lee Konitz, Oscar Peterson, Don Cherry, Stuff Smith. Just to mention a few of the, it's the biggest names in jazz, of course. And then uh, in the late 60s, when the, the interest in, in jazz uh, ceased, uh, then, they, then the club had chose some rock and roll or rock uh, names like uh, Taste and Country Joe and the Fish, Soft Machine and Colosseum, for instance. And, uh, and th- they all played in Hatchback um, Land. They'd produced shows by Jimi Hendrix and The Who a few years earlier at the nearby Velsby Riskov Holland, but didn't have enough advance warning from the Scandinavian booking agency. So stock-laden it was. Jen Scovby attended the Aarhus show and remembers it was a journey to get there in those days. You have to drive for three hours, and on the route you have to sail for one hour. At that time we didn't have a bridge as we have today, so it's four-hour transport in a country as small as Denmark. The building manager told me when I interviewed him that they brought much more gear than any other band that has played in Stagland ever since. Among that equipment was the band's light rig. By then, the band's new lighting team was starting to come together. Lighting technician Ben Holler. We played Wembley. I think that was the first gig in London. When I'm out there, I'm running a follow spot in the back of the house. They don't really know me that well. Candace can at least talk to one human, you know. It's a nightmare even in America talking to follow spot operators, you know. You get a New Yorker talking to a guy from Georgia, forget it. In Aarhus, they chalked up another solid tour story. It was a university setting and everything. We set it up. For some reason, it got done really quickly there. So we went to the cafeteria and we got in line. And Candace is so excited. And there's there's a carton of milk. You know, here's just something American. You know, I can just drink this carton of milk. And she takes this big gulp and then spits it sky high. And because the Danes like buttermilk. And she just wasn't ready for a big mouthful of buttermilk. And it didn't say buttermilk on the box. It just said milch or whatever, you know. It's, it's, so the concert was, it was a nice concert. It was one of those ones that I remember, and this happened a lot with the dead. Some of the stuff in Europe, in the big places, the, the show was all right. But I remember, especially in uh, Dijon, the show was magical. But it's in a little farming community. There are no critics there to see it. There, there's no... And as I recall, the show in, in that university was, again, nice. Maybe it just was there wasn't a lot of pressure. Jen Scovby. It's Stuckland. It simply means a barn. If you saw the Bruce Springsteen film, you, you know how a barn is. And that means it was a very small cafeteria uh, connected to the University of O's. All the equipment from the cafeteria was there. Uh, there was uh, chairs and uh, tables and all that just stuffed into the side of, of the room. We'd never seen uh, that much equipment before. So, so 
There was not much space in the stage. Pill-like. I sat near the entrance, a long way from the, the stage. I think there were about 700 people, um, full capacity. Um, and as I rode in the liner notes, I had to sit on this uh, cafeteria tray slide, at least uh, until the intermission. And there was these rafters under the ceiling, so uh, people were craw crawling up there and sitting there. I think uh, most were students from the university. I don't think rather many of them knew what, what they were going to hear. We have all heard Grateful Dead records or something like that, but I think none of, of us has never heard a concert like this where the band was connecting to the crowd as they did. It was simply a quite a new experience to all of us. The critic uh, that I interviewed, he told me that there was this uh, very tight connection between the band and, and the audience. And well, he said also that there was no security at all. Um, he was sit sitting up front and he noticed that there was this uh, tighter connection between band and audience than he had ever experienced before. And he told me that it was like an invitation to the audience. I think most dead concerts uh, starts on a little scrumpling way and then suddenly inside the band a machine starts and then it goes. Uh, and I think it started already in Sugary, uh, and in, when, when they started up Sugary and it kept rolling, I think people were on it. Just one thing I ask of you It's just one thing for me I think at that time, people normally came and took up their amplifier and their guitar uh, and they played uh, a number and that was that, and hello people and, and all that. Here, they simply mingled with the, with the crowd in a way we never, we never heard before, you know, people dancing and go, uh, you, you couldn't walk around to the music, but you could slip and slide a bit to it. So uh, it was like they simply put out their arms and, 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 and hold us. It was so intimate. Like everything from Europe 72, it's an excellent show. Donna Jean is absent, perhaps hanging back in Copenhagen. The band play their first direwolf in nearly a year, and thus the first of Keith Godshaw's tenure with the band. Playing in the band is starting to turn some corners in its jams. I love the amount of movement in this little segment. disappointed during some of the first songs in the first set, but later that night I became 
very enthusiastic about the music, especially, of course, the jam parts and the second sets. And I have been a fan ever since. Not a fanatic fan. <laughs> I, I counted my uh, records last night. I have about 180 compact discs and 25 LPs for the Grateful Dead. That's all. In the intermission at the concert in 1972, I think that about a third of uh, the audience left simply. They think that they did not know the Grateful Dead, I think, and they thought that, well, we have had two hours now, it's time to go home. I think that was what happened at that time. Of course, uh, the second set, uh, which is one long set, uh, it was fantastic. There was a tremendous sound. And one of the things I remember very clearly was, of course, Jerry playing a Stratocaster, uh, but that was Phil's bass. I think he was using Big Brown that evening. And it was so distinct, so clear, and, and so sweet and soft and, and everywhere. So that was fantastic. We've never heard anything like that before. In the second set, there's a long transition between Truckin' and the other one, with lots of little episodes like this. During uh, the last couple of songs, uh, Not Fade Away and Going Down the Road, it was possible to walk around in, in the room. That has been quite impossible during the first set. I think it was without comparison with, with anything else we've seen or heard before. Uh, it was quite another way to listen to a concert and to be with a band. We were talking about it for weeks after that. And uh, I think uh, for many of the people who were there, uh, the album from from uh, the 72 Europe tour was their first way into the dead. Thanks, Jensen Pill. And then it was back to Copenhagen for another legendary show. David Lemieux. They come back to Tivoli and play there again, this time with some TV cameras. And the vibe is very similar to 414 for the second Tivoli show. And add to that that they're now playing to the cameras, which is fun. And I love that show too. This is important Grateful Dead music. This is important era. And to get to see that was very, very special. Um, so I, I think the Tivoli is a wonderful, it's a wonderfully important document, similar to Vanita, where you get to see uh, a China Rider transition, minus the cutaways of the dancers. But uh, Dark Star, you get to see, you get to see things that are important parts of the Grateful Dead sound. The cameras belong to Danish national television, and it was a landmark event. The cameras were present for the first two-thirds of the show, filming for later broadcast, and, in the middle, broadcasting live for a half hour on Danish television. One very young fan who was at the show was Lars Benecke. Lars is now the head of catalog for Warner Brothers in Denmark. It's the family business. 
His father, Olaf Beneke, was the contact point for the dead in Denmark. My dad filled us up with music from when we were kids. He was the um, um, second in command of, of the local licensee of Warners in, in, in Denmark. At that time, it was called uh, Metronome. And he, together with a guy called Ben Fabric, who had a number one hit in the States with Alicat, uh, made this metronome company in Denmark. And they made a deal with uh, with Atlantic, later on Warner, and then Electra came on board. And he was kind of running the show when I was a kid. And every Thursday he brought home uh, test pressings. And to me, it was like uh, heaven. Thursdays were always heaven because that was, you know, we picked uh, uh, me and my big, uh, bigger brother. We we went through all the the stacks of, of new music, from from Led Zeppelin to Doors to James Taylor, whatever. So um, yeah, so I was hooked uh, quite early on, and um, he took us to, to shows at the time. I remember we we met. Uh, that was very early. One of the first one was was Doors, where he had to to give them a, some some kind of an award. And then the Rascals in 69, I think it was. It was because of Olaf Benneke and Metronome that Bjorn Lindstrom was able to snag a recording of the 14th April show off Danish radio. And it was because of them that cameras would be at the 17th April show back at Tivoli. And the producer, Egmund Jensen, who interviews uh, Jerry, he was a cool guy from Danish radio who was interested in music. And so he, he was a very good friend of my dad who promoted the records in, in Denmark. So they kind of hooked up. And did TV shows with Randy Newman, Harry Chapin, uh, Tom uh, Tom Waits, uh, stuff like that. And, and that also included Led Zeppelin, Grateful Dead, and Dolls. I remember the producer coming in a, a, a privately in our home, and they were, I mean, the, our, we as kids were, were bummed to bed, but I know they stayed up very, very late. Maybe had some scotch or whatever they had, but they played records all night and and. Many of those nights, I'm dead sure that's where the ideas of doing recordings or, you know, my father's knowledge of who was touring and who was doing this and that and then trying to see if, if something could be worked out from there. Edmund Jensen interviewed Jerry Garcia following the band Soundcheck. I like this exchange. Yeah, you played a favorite of mine just a moment ago, uh, Uncle John's band. Right. What does that tell about then? <laughs> well, what does it tell you about well, <laughs> you got me there. Right, but you like it anyway, yeah. right? Okay, well, that's the way it is with me. I don't know what it tells about. All I know is I like it, you know. I like it. I like that place, wherever it is. I like Uncle John and his band, whoever they are. Garcia explains why the band's performances stretch over three hours. Basically, the experience we, we relate to is playing music and really getting off and really, you know, getting high from it, you know, and the audience getting high and everybody getting high. And on a, on a really super night, that's what happens. And that's the thing that we're basically, we basically try to do every performance. So we have long performance to allow ourselves the possibility because we'd never be able to do it if we were doing like 45-minute sets and that sort of thing. We would just, we'd never do it. When we arrived at the hall, we went straight to to backstage area, uh, both for, for my dad to, to to discuss with the TV people and so forth. And we had to meet the band and say hello. Or my dad had to. So we we tag, were tagged along. We went backstage and there was a lot of people backstage. So I recall a lot of people, very colorful people. Um, and it was, it was very cheerful. Um, and I, I was standing there um, 
some of the time alone because my dad was mediating or talking to, to the TV production and the band, of course. But that over comes this guy uh, grinning and having fun, big smile, and saying, who are you? What's your name? And stuff like that. And, you know, 11 years, I tried to explain who I was. And English is, is the second language in Denmark. So from the first grade, you, you learn English. So there was no problem speaking to him. But he was so um, he was very happy and and, and cheerful and as as I remember, but there was this grin and this huge face, uh, hairy face. I remember, and most of all, I remember seeing out of my eyes, or I noticed that he was missing uh, part of his finger. Didn't say anything like that, or didn't think about it at the time. But later on, my, when my dad was there, I said, well, "Well, what have you been? I've been speaking to this guy called Jerry, and uh, oh, you met Jerry, rah, rah, rah. Yeah, he's the guitar player." I was like, "Guitar player? What? He's missing one finger." But anyway, I didn't say anything. But later on, when we were in the hall and they were on stage, was oh, there's the guy, and he's on the, was on the left, and he was playing the guitar for real. So yeah. That, you know, that was you know some of the non-music impressions that an 11-year-old kid. And tonight, the band do it again, playing the first three-set show of the tour with over three hours of music. Though none of the music would make it to Europe 72, some pictures certainly would. It was an eventful night. Out in the equipment truck, the crew gave three stars to a number of performances, including China Cat Sunflower into I Know You Rider. <laughs> Benicky and his father went to their seats. I was only 11, so uh, I mean, I was more like a spectator, and the lady taking off her T-shirt with nothing beneath, three rows back, were, were things I remember. Another kid who's in another famous Danish act called Swartzel, Black Sun, he's called Steen Jorgensen, and he is like three or four years older than me. He was in the audience with his dad as well. People were so much into the music. Because I wouldn't say we're, we're Japanese in, in the sense of just sitting there and then clapping and sitting there. But pe- people enjoyed it. They were very much into the, to the music. And seeing and smelling, <laughs> because it was, it was a show where there, where there was a lot of smoke in the air. And yeah, we weren't used to that. Or at least I wasn't. And I remember the sweet smell in the air. And, um, and, and the whole loose kind of thing that went with the it, it fitted well with the music. It was not just another day in Copenhagen, it was a special day. I wouldn't say it was like a church, but it felt like when you're in a, in a church and you're really going for it. It was like everybody uh, was in, in into it. Uh, that's what I remember. And I also remember that was it was quite difficult to see everything on stage because everybody was standing up and um I'm not short, but at the time I was shorter than now, so it was difficult to to see all of what happening to them. Many a times I had to stand on the chair in order to see the stage, so that's what I did. And with television cameras rolling, though not yet live, 
the band debuted a brand new Jerry Garcia, Robert Hunter song destined for the live album, but it wasn't yet finished. Gone was destined to be a dead classic, of course, a sing-along that lasted in the band's repertoire all the way through 1995. They tracked the canonical version in Amsterdam a few weeks later, the newest song on Europe 72. We'll dive more into it then. Like a steam Time to go live to Denmark. We're going to take a little short break here and uh, then come back in a few minutes for this uh, TV thing, and then uh, we'll, we'll do the TV thing, and that'll be then. Then all that will be over Very special. With. It's very special. Thanks a lot. Meanwhile, you'll find your souvenir posters in the lobby, cupid dolls of all the band members, and uh... Sam Cutler. The Grateful Dead were going to be the first ever band to play live on Danish television, which was a big fucking thing, you know? And, uh, you know, it was a bit of a coup that we got together, right? And um, what happened was this. Queen Juliana of the Netherlands was on a state visit to Denmark. So there was a half-hour show of her wandering around in golden carriages and all that, like, you know, she's a queen of the Netherlands, isn't it? You know what I mean? visit in Denmark and then they were going to cut from that to the Tivoli in Copenhagen right the very famous old theater where the Grateful Dead were going to play there have been many live rock performances on Danish television including the first filmed appearance by Led Zeppelin in March 1969 but the dead were the first to truly play live Lars Benneke's father helped organize it on the Danish end I think that was one of the only ones I I, I know about because I would definitely known if there were other stuff because there were not not any live uh, transmissions uh, from Danish television. We didn't have the gear for it. They weren't, weren't set up to do it. And when they did live transmissions, it was very seldom. It had to be from the royal family or it had to be from, you know, something spectacular uh, event. Rock music at the time weren't that spectacular. It was like, no. <laughs> so, so it was definitely history in the making. So everything was set up. It was all happening. The band's on stage. It's all cool. I was outside where they had the outside broadcast TV truck with the Danish director. And, you know, it's all going to, you know, everything's getting ready. So we're like five minutes away. And we're about three minutes away from, like, cutting from Queen Juliana's state visit to the Grateful Dead at the Tivoli, you know, like a very, very tense moment. And the little prick that's uh, like going to announce the Grateful Dead and go like scobbledy, 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 gob the Grateful Dead is trying to be seen by the camera that, you know, camera number three or whatever that he's got to talk to. And he's behind Garcia's amplifier, this bank of amplifiers, 
and the amps are too high, so he can't see over the amps and the camera can't see him. And I'm in the control booth and this camera's going like this, trying to find the, where the fuck is the guy that's going to announce the show? And there's like a minute to go. And here we were at Tivoli Gardens and we were very professional. One our first rodeo, we worked with people coming in and doing, you know, want to film something and introduce the band and film it. It always went down that way. And so we're at the monitor board and now it's like two minutes to showtime. The band's out on stage and then these guys are ready. The guy's out on the mic and the guy's got the camera on him from Danish TV and they're going to broadcast the show from Tivoli, this amazing historical place. And the little guy was a little too short, the announcer. And he starts yelling at the cameraman, whose name was Fritz. Fritz, I'm too short. I'm too little. Get me something to stand on. Get me something to stand on. So he didn't know what to do. He takes a garbage can that had been there all day, man. And people had been throwing milk containers in it and all kinds of uh, lunch receptacles and stuff and, and, and dirt and sludge. And he just takes the fucking thing and spit, turns it over and dumps on our cables and all over the stage, all this garbage, man. And he puts the announcer up on it and the guy's up on it. Turns it upside down and stands on it and the camera's like, oh, oh got him, like that, right? At which point, uh, finally, you know, there's like 15 seconds to go. The guy puts his microphone up to his mouth to introduce the band and this fist like, in slow motion comes through the side of the fucking thing, goes bang, and the guy goes, Ugh. right? <laughs> and the director buries his head like this next to me. I'm ruined, I'm ruined, I'm ruined. And Garcia luckily saw the whole thing and started playing. So that was the introduction of the Grateful Dead uh, in the Copenhagen. Sam says I slugged the guy, but I didn't. But right as he goes, and now, ladies and gentlemen, I tackle him and he falls off the garbage can. I go, you're not doing this. And this is what people saw, this little fracas going on because of the disrespect. Now, what would you have done? The director finally pulled himself together and um, well, there we are. That was the first time a live band ever appeared and they were fabulous. I mean, it was a great gig. This little bit of film, in fact, nearly the entire live part of the evening, doesn't survive in the circulating copies. Lars and Olaf Beneke have nothing to contradict this story, though. I called my dad and said, do you remember anything? He was said it could have happened, but it was not, it was not put to him. And unfortunately, the people involved in the production are not here anymore because otherwise I would have called Ekman or somebody and said, what the hell happened, guys? And there's nobody from Tivoli around. Bjorn Lindstrom, who'd seen them a few days previous, though, was watching at home and is positive he witnessed a more peaceful transition of power, with announcer Edmund Jensen sitting on the lip of the stage and introducing the band from there. The TV transmission was just uh, 20 minutes, I think. The right. first words from the producer was, uh, "You just made a, you just missed the great song," <laughs> and then uh, it went into went to the next one. Recently, at the behest of the Deadcast, Bjorn was nice enough to do some searching through Danish newspapers and found a review of the broadcast published the next morning, which offers a thumbs down review to Edmund Jensen's introduction of the band and mentions no punch. If it's something that Sam Cutler saw through one of the monitors in the television truck. Maybe it was an incident that occurred before they were live to all of Denmark. Certainly enough members of the dead family seem to recall a Danish fracas. 
It was totally a great gig. If you've never seen it, it's pretty easy to find. And if not, ask a deadhead. For once, the band seemed totally comfortable in front of the cameras, and even a few of the live tunes get three-star ratings from the crew, including Mr. Charlie. And the closing number of the live segment, and the only part of the actual live broadcast to currently circulate as video, the band's new single in Europe, One More Saturday Night. One more Saturday night, one more Saturday night. Bob Weir said goodbye, the cameras weren't gone yet, and the dead hit a few more highly rated numbers, including It Hurts Me Too. Ramble on Rose. I'm gonna sing you a hundred verses in ragtime. I know this song, it ain't ever gonna end. I'm gonna march you up and down the local county line. Take you to the leader of a Perhaps the show's most legendary moment didn't warrant a rating, but it's there on video. During Big Railroad Blues, the clown masks and Groucho Marx glasses they'd been using to weird the locals find their way to the stage, with band and crew alike donning bozo costumery for one of the band's most visually arresting performances. And it was me that went in New York to a joke shop and bought all those bozo masks and all that stuff. We brought a big bag of those with us just for the hell of it. And ended up becoming iconic to that tour as the guys wore them in a couple of places and played, you know. And we would go into towns in our two buses, and we had 50 of us. And we would have all those masks on, and we had some other masks. that I, I kept them for all these years. They were in my barn, but they all melted together in this giant thing from a window. A window had hit them and just... UV'd them into a pile of all this mixed up alien faces and strange masks. 
I should have preserved them. They became such a historical thing. People loved them. When the shoot ended, the band took another set break and came back for another piece of important business. Welcome back, Graham Boone. Jerry repeating that riff, pushing it in there, and everybody's getting behind this beautiful progression. Energy picking up. Listen to Bob and Keith together. Interesting move, Jerry on this slow descending line. No, down, down, down. Well, mini episode unfolding. Beautiful. A little bit like a slower deal go down, but not quite. Jerry up to high G, and then the high climactic A. There you have it, guys. It's that climax riff. Beautiful dark star progression. Coming down, and then return to that Jerry riff. And we're locked in. Now, quieting down for the first verse. Though some deadheads complained about the repetitive organ riff Pigpen would play in early versions of Darkstar, by 1972 he was contributing to the jam in deeper ways. Graham calls him out at the beginning here, but he's right there jamming along for this whole great segment. Bum, bum. And now you can hear Pigpen coming in on organ. Very quiet, but very supportive of what's going on harmonically. And now you can hear Keith picking up the rhythm. A minor. And all of a sudden, they're off into A minor. Phil picking up a great riff in A minor, A minor. And there we have Bob. Little A minor, B minor diminished riff. It's the Let It Grow vamp in embryonic form. Listen to Keith really getting, getting around that vamp. Lots of energy. 
built. Great rhythmic backup here. Phil backing up the Bob riff. So here Jerry starts playing gestural ideas that aren't really in the meter. stops playing that vamp. Going to D minor. Interesting. Where might they go from here? Now to G. And then back to A minor. Bob returning to that Let It Grow vamp a little bit. Notice the loose meter. A keening slow notes from Jerry. And now Jerry hitting an insistent high E. And Jerry's starting to blur things with chromatic notes. Dead liked their song suites, and in Europe, Darkstar was pretty solidly linked to one song in particular. Things are melting and getting really timbral. Oh, beautiful. Complete opening up. Onto A, A major. Waiting, we're waiting for it to come out. Beautiful harmonies from Jerry. Bill slips into rhythm. Bob takes over, and we're into Sugar Magnolia. Alan Trist. Denmark. That was at Tivoli Gardens, wasn't it? And the uh, and there was a, a a TV show done there. I think later on it became problematic for copyright reasons as to how it could be used. David Lemieux. 
there's a copy in the vault, but there's no ownership and there's no quality to do anything with, even if there was. But there is a master somewhere in Europe that is owned by somebody, uh, by, a, by an organization. Also, unfortunately, the third set from Tivoli 417, which is the Dark Star Caution Night, um, there doesn't appear to be video of it. I think there's a one camera shoot on, uh, on kind of mediocre video that's more of an in-house feed. I think it's more of like a closed caption or a, clo a closed circuit thing. Um, whereas the rest of the show looks amazing. That was the part that was broadcast and looks wonderful. Uh, Multi-camera, great angles. The third set, unfortunately, wasn't. There's no known great quality film of it. And we have talked to the owner and they've dug through and they've never found that either. But it was an important show. It is one of those shows that you talk about. It's not, you know, forgotten. Also because mainly because it was recorded and has been shown many a times on Danish television. It's something that pops up as being one of the historic shows in, in, in Denmark. And people refer to, and that's why I said that if everybody who claims being there on that night, Madison Square Garden would be too small to play for, for having all those people. Pigpen made an impression, as Hans Frank recalls. Well, I'm really happy that we managed to to see and hear uh, Pigpen play and sing. Uh, that was amazing. Actually, when I was in the uh, went into the Air Force a year later, and to do my my service. And then there I heard that Pigpen had died. So Danish TV actually put up, sent some of the uh, Pigpen tunes from the show, put them on television. And of course, Danish fans got a triple album of the tour. And then we got the, this marvelous triple album. And, and that was kind of the holy grail of music, the go-to album of the, of the time, Europe 72, back when it was just three LPs. Brought back some of the uh, sensations of that night. And fans who attended the first night at Tivoli can even say they contributed. Yeah, I'm, I'm clapping on that. So is Dan Terrell, who continued to be an enormous Grateful Dead fan, reviewing their albums and writing likely the only Danish-language essay on Robert Hunter, even translating some of Hunter's lyrics into Danish. Dan Terrell would die in 1993, but would have one more powerful encounter with the Grateful Dead, Lars Moven. On his very last trip to uh, to California in 19... Uh, 89, you actually got to see Grateful Dead on sort of their, their home turf or whatever. They played a number of shows. I think it was three days in a row in, in, uh, in Mountain View, just south of San Francisco, in something called the Shoreline Amphitheater. And he happened to be there on holiday with his family or they were traveling California. He went to see them on the first night, Friday, September 29th. The first night, Dan Terrell saw the dead revive Death Don't Have No Mercy for the first time since 1970, later released on the So Many Roads box set. Come to your house, you know it don't take no. You look in the bed, find your mama is gone. Death don't have no mercy. We have his notebooks from, from that trip because they were, after he died, his notebook from that California trip was, was published in a sort of facsimile uh, of the notebook. And you can see from his note that he was slightly disappointed because Jerry Garcia apparently was not that well that evening. It turned out not to be quite the experience that he had hoped for. But then 
his family convinced him to go back and see them again on the third night <laughs> because they didn't they felt sorry for him that he was so disappointed so he he was allowed to to go another time one more time and on sunday evening uh and this time uh Jerry Garcia was apparently much better and it was a perfect concert and they played turn on your love light that evening which was one of the tracks that he really liked from the very first album that he ever reviewed by the dead live dead from from 70 so he got to hear that uh, track live and they ended the night by playing uh, knocking on heaven's door by bob dylan as an as an encore so it was a perfect evening and he in his notebooks he he writes about how beautiful it was and 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 how much he felt like being part of that whole uh community of deadheads that were attending the concert and that he finally experienced that feeling of being part of that whole thing so in the next couple of days he was just you know floating on a on a cloud and and his, he said he says in his notebook his family could hardly recognize him because he was just so happy so he was it was bliss so it was very beautiful that that he got to have this experience because you know unfortunately he he didn't live much longer he he got cancer when he was 40 47 and and died uh soon after that so um so that that was sad but he had this experience just before that so that was beautiful and um and just to give you another idea about how much he valued the grateful dead um just before he he died he had made a danish translation sort of his own version of black muddy river from in the dark where he sort of transformed it into um a, a piece about a big Copenhagen or a, a danish location and on his own request uh, black muddy, muddy river the actual track from from grateful dead's album was also played at his funeral so um they grateful that followed him right till the end you could say i will walk alone by the black muddy river and sing me a song of my own i will walk alone by the black muddy river sing me a song The Danish dead scene remains a cozy place. Bjorn Lindstrom, who saw the Dan in 1972, now runs the website dancingbear.dk, acting as an importer of cool dead stuff to Denmark. I um, got the idea to save a little on the postage, which was a great part of the the expense. If I could um, buy a number of each item, the postage would be uh, spread out. Of course, it uh, started small in uh, 99 and 2000 and grew very slowly. And it's, well, it's not a thing I'm making big money out of. I don't have many regular customers, but uh, the ones I have are very regular, uh, both in Denmark and, and in uh, many countries in Europe. Uh, apart from the shop, I, uh, I have uh, some deadhead friends whom I meet once a year. One of the fantastic um, record collector. He has uh, vinyls and, and uh, CDs and uh, tapes from the floor to ceiling in, in his little flat. 
So we go there and uh, listen to great music for a long, long evening and uh, most of the night, once a year. Alan Trist had a memorable run-in during the loadout from the Tivoli Gardens, which we'll use as a way to start our own loadout from Denmark. In our last episode, we discussed the mythical figure of St. Dilbert, the mysterious vessel of hypnocracy. But he sometimes took earthly form. Mostly I rode the Bozo bus. And I had an interesting run-in with St. Gilbert. He accused me of not carrying my weight and set me to breaking down the setup after the Tivoli Gardens gig in Copenhagen. By that time in the tour, some of the crew were, got a little fed up with some of the managers and office people saying, well, you guys are just riding along. You're not doing any, any work, you know. We're, we're carrying you. <laughs> you know? It was a kind of typical complaint between the different parts of the dead organization. Well, I immediately volunteered to, to help the crew on their loadout after a show. I said, well, I can do something here. My job was to wheel road cases from stage to the equipment and back. And almost immediately, one catapulted over a loose cable and sundry items spilled on top of each other and clattered across the parquet floor. Eloquent silence and devastating glares from the crew. But to be fair, the saint was forgiving. So perhaps you can guess the identity of St. Dilbert. Ready to know the inspiration for St. Dilbert? It was Steve. <laughs> he was the saint and is to this day. I turned around and then all the crew were looking at me from the stage where they were stacking up stuff, you know, you, you know, but, but then there was a lot of laughter and you know, I don't think anyone ever did it, tried to help out the crew anymore. <laughs> I was trying to tell Hunter that he was psychic when he wrote St. Stephen. He, I said, you wrote that about me, but you didn't know you were writing it. So he, he started calling it St. Dilbert, you know, as the stupidest thing he ever heard, right? And so he was playing with that. And it was onward to Germany. There was another ferry ride, as Donna Jean recalls her encounter with what is now known as Heidj, a Danish love of comfort. We left Denmark on a ferry, an overnight trip on a ferry. And that was also something that I... I definitely remember because at that time, you know, I had no even thinking about what European bedding was like. Like it was so different than ours. And that's where like the concept of a comforter and all of that came from when I got on that ferry and there were were these comforter-like things that we slept in. And I, I went, wow, that is really cool. You know, that's very different. And I, I loved being on that ferry. And and I have a photo of Keith and Jerry just smiling, laughing together on that ferry. And it's just a special memory. Thanks very much for tuning in. Huge thanks to our guests in this episode, including Sam Cutler, 
Steve Parrish, Mountain Girl, Donna Jean Godshill McKay, Ben Holler, Alan Trist, Jim Sullivan, Giesbert Hanekrut, John Morris, Sam Field, David Lemieux, M.C. Taylor, Lars Benecke, Bjorn Lindstrom, Hans Franke, Jen Scobby, Paul Leike, Lars Moven, Graham Boone, and Sean O'Donnell. And please don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks very much. See you next week. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.